The following conversation is with Victor Rett. Victor is a 69-year-old black man who lives in Gig Harbor, Washington. I first met Victor when I moved back home in 2014. And we have a great conversation about life, and, and he has great wisdom, and, but also has a care, a genuine love for his fellow human being. One of the things I've always appreciated about Victor is he's honest. And that honesty leads to powerful conversations. Today's conversation, we talk about racism. We talk about slavery. Those are challenging conversations for people to have. But I think what's important is to learn from what Victor shared, and that is listen, ask questions, get to know the people around you, and build community versus closing doors and building higher fences. We are not experts. I know I'm not an expert. I have not lived and I've not walked in the shoes of Victor Rett. And Victor does not claim to be an expert either. But we both believe that it's essential to have conversations such as this about racism and slavery. Because one thing people don't recognize is in America, it's estimated that 400,000 people are living in slavery in America today and worldwide. Globally, 50 million people are enslaved. I believe that we have a problem globally and we have a problem locally. Thank you for listening. And here is Victor Rett. Victor, I did not know you were born in Germany. Yes. So Stuttgart, where Porsches are made. Really? Yes. Mm, that's cool. Uh, one of my fantasies is to drive... Um, on the Autobahn, or I wouldn't say fantasies. It's a, I don't really have a bucket list. Yeah, yeah I hadn't it, really developed one, but now that I've <laughs> sort of retired, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. just a month ago, and I'm kind of getting used to it. Uh, and uh, you know, a couple things come up. Uh, someone um, immediately when they heard I was retiring, they offered me a job. Uh, wait a minute, that's <laughs> not. I don't think I'm ready for this. Yes. So, um, but. Uh, uh, as far as, yeah, so I, I just recently retired and I've, I've, um, I've got a couple things that I want to do. Yeah. And, um, but, uh, also there's some recreation or some mindless pursuits in there sure. too. So, so driving on the Autobahn though would be a cool one. Oh man, I'm, I'll look forward to that. So, so if you ever, I've heard people, they would go to Europe to, to test drive or drive the car that they purchased. Mm-hmm. And then, and they experience it. And then they bring that car, you know. Sure. It, it gets shipped home. Have you ever thought about something like that? Uh, <laughs> I did, but I generally buy cars that are, you know, three years old. Yeah. And um, I, because most of the depreciation is gone. Yes. And I just can't see paying above $50,000 for a car. No, no. So, um yeah, so I have thought of it, and I, I know that Porsche, Mercedes, Volvo, uh, they all have uh, European delivery programs where, you know, essentially, instead of renting a car, you uh, take delivery of your new vehicle there and drive around the country, take your European vacation, and part of the pricing includes shipping it back to your yeah. home destination. That's pretty cool. Yeah, but BMW, at least the car that I... Uh, I, I drive a BMW, and uh, they have a big factory. In fact, uh, a lot of European-Japanese fact, um, 
manufacturers in the last 20 years have established uh, primarily uh, East Coast or, or Mid-South kind of um, manufacturing facilities. And uh, Volvo ha- uh, BMW has one in South Carolina. I think Toyota has one in Smyrna, Tennessee, That's true, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So how long did you uh, live in uh, Germany? Well, my father did three tours. He was a U.S. Army, and um, he had three tours, and we went on one of them by the time, which the, the I think the second of which, maybe it was the first of which uh, I was born, but uh, there were two tours that were for unaccompanied uh, servicemen, meaning that you can't bring your family. So okay. uh, that was that second, maybe the third tour, um, we decided to live with my grandfather, my mother's father, down in um, um, southwestern Alabama, near, not far from Mobile. Okay. And he had, uh, you know, unlike many black men, in fact, um, his mother, I think, was, oh, my grandmother, no, great-grandmother, would have been... Um, she was part Indian, part black, and part white. Mm. And he was part black and uh, uh, part white. And the way that happens, if I mean, if you look at people in this country that call themselves black, that have their history, have, who we have our history in the United States, even though some people, a lot of people call themselves African-American, well, I'm definitely more American than I am African in terms of my acculturation sure. and uh, background, what I understand. Um, and I've only been to South Africa, and uh, though I hope to, on my bucket list, to um, uh, do more traveling to yeah. uh, East and uh, West Africa especially. I was able to go to um, Zambia. Okay. And yeah, just a incredible, you know, people to meet. Uh, we would have uh, training of teachers, mm. and so... When the training started, the staff would get up and start singing, and they sang in perfect harmony. And I, it was what it was. I've never had like a staff of teachers start singing, but it was such a what it was an honor. But two, it was also beautiful community of, of singing together. And mm-hmm. then, and then when we're done with the training, it would end with more singing. Sure. And I thought, what a cool way of community. Yeah, and tradition. Yeah, a Love lot of that. that. I think uh, a lot of that has remained culturally with uh, enslaved people, with black mm. people. And, you know, I uh, spent some time in the South. I was um, uh, especially Alabama uh, during one of my dad's uh, tour of duties that was unaccompanied, and we would go to church, and it's an all-day thing on Sunday. I mean, you go to church, a preacher preaches for it hour plus then you get out and you have food and commune and play games and go back into church and then you might walk down to the uh, river and baptize people i mean it was wild but (laughs) you know church was not a uh, one hour and we're out of there and then forget about whatever happens until the next sunday Uh, it wasn't that at all and uh it was uh um it was God's word and worshiping and singing together and then eating and communing and playing together and then being baptized. And that's, it's, uh, it's, uh, 
those are some joyful and uh, memorable experiences that are that still yeah. are a big part of my makeup. That's part of who I am. That's pretty. That's cool to hear about community like that, where you don't get in, get it done, leave, but rather it's an all day event. Oh yeah, and, and an all day of being with people. Yes, definitely. And I think that's something that we can learn in. You know, when it when it comes to like the Pacific Northwest, because mm-hmm. I only know church from the Pacific Northwest. I, I you know, lived in Bangladesh, and and um, what was similar is it was an hour long, you know, sure church service, but the prayers were about ten fifteen minutes. <laughs> so I remember thinking, if I hold my head this way. For any length of time longer, I'm going to get a kink in my neck. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, but it was also just really intentional. And that intentionality of, of how we're going to pray mm-hmm. was something that I realized, man, I, I may not know how to pray in that, in that manner because it was very specific. It was also very uh, God-focused, mm-hmm. thanking God celebrating God, and then also coming with, you know, a body's personal, you know, needs. And yes. it was so cool to, to see that. Well, I think one of the beauties of that community, that worship community, is you know people. You know who's got a son on drugs. Mm-hmm. You know who's, having, who's had a miscarriage. Uh, and you can pray specifically for their needs, as well as once you get off your needs, you know what to do. Because I think, you know, uh, at least for me as a Christian, I think prayer is, there, there are many reasons uh, or justifications for praying. But the, the God I serve didn't stay, you know, uh, who, uh, whose son was sacrificed. He didn't stay on his knees. He did stuff. And some of it was pretty radical. We'll turn over the priest's uh, tables in the, in, the, um, in the temple, you know, and uh, I believe that happened twice, but one time he contemplated what he was going to do and just observed, and then he got angry and threw these folks out. But to me, there was a display of anger there that Jesus did get married. Uh, angry, I'm sorry. Yeah, yes. Um, and um, so I think there is a place for anger, you know, uh, in, in, the, in, in the life of a believer. Uh, we're put on this planet to be salt of the earth and... Um, uh, and, and light of the world. Well, you know, that means that you're supposed to influence. And uh, I think we best influence people by uh, acquainting them, not forcing them to accept our position or our understanding. And in fact, as far as I'm concerned, one, I'm not saving anybody. That's not why I was put on this earth. And, uh, and either way, and I, I didn't mean to move this, not deliberately, to a religious discussion. No, yeah. But as far as uh, I'm concerned, Jesus gave us a choice. He didn't say, follow me or else. He just said, follow me. And he said to love one another. And um, I think the jury's out on, on how we love one another. And hopefully, maybe that's the focus of, of uh, some of the focus of of what you're doing here, but I think it's to listen to and understand uh, each other and know what to do. Uh, yeah. Or and that that doesn't mean that we can't be wrong about what we do. Just 
learn from your mistakes. You know, everybody makes them. I, I think we learn more from our mistakes and from the pain in our life than we do from things going smoothly. At least that's been my experience. Yes. You typically learn through challenging times. Mm-hmm. You, you grow through challenging moments in your life. And if you had an easy life, you would never be challenged. You would never grow. You would never know your limitations either. Absolutely. And I think one of the things about taking risks, um, as a young teacher, I had the ability of how am I going to teach a classroom a lesson? And I would explore the limitations on what kids would be able to figure out, what they would not, and how do I challenge a group of kids who have different levels of understanding, different personalities, different uh, limitations themselves. And it was so much fun to explore that as a young teacher. I could get away with that. So then it made me a better teacher. Yes. And, yeah. Well, I think also, you know, in, in the teaching model that I understand, the way the learning occurs is you kind of have a guide, and that's the let's let me equate that with being a teacher. Uh, the teacher's the guide, and the the uh, students equated with new ideas or different ways of thinking, but yet they have to appreciate the experiences uh, and the knowledge that's being imparted upon them, and then take from that what's going to work in their lives so that they can have a meaningful life and make meaningful contributions as you know, based upon their yeah. gifts or based upon their interests. The best learning, one, is, one can learn from their own mistakes and typically does. <laughs> yes. But I think we make, I know I've made a lot more by not having uh, a guide and mm-hmm. some of that uh, um, and learned a lot quicker, more um, effectively when I did. Yes. And, and I, I definitely want to get, get into that because I think part of the, our conversation is going to be looking at now that you are retired and the idea of transitioning to becoming that guide for other people, becoming that mentor, mm-hmm. which I think is something that I can't wait to talk about. But so far, you were born in Germany. You've lived in Alabama. Yeah, Alabama, Kentucky, California, Ohio, Alaska. Wow. And for the last uh, 37 years in Pugetopolis, uh, 15 or 16. Pugetopolis? I love yes, that. Yes. <laughs> well, mostly South Pugetopolis, yes. you know, where. Uh, for, uh, for those who are listening who are like, I, I had I'm a from friend. the Midwest. I have no clue what Pugetopolis, Puget Sound area. <laughs> I love it though. Well, you know, I, I, I've. Uh, some of that, my um, uh, home here yeah. uh, in Pugetopolis has been um, uh, a year in Federal Way, a year in Kent, 10 years in Auburn, 10 years in Lakewood, and about 15 here. Wow, 15 in, years. Uh, Gig Harbor. In Gig Harbor, yes. Yes. What's, uh, when you first arrived in Gig Harbor, what was your initial impression of the community of Gig Harbor? You know, I, I didn't, this was not necessary. this was not a destination uh, in terms of a place of living initially. Um, I was going through a divorce. My second wife, my first wife died when my kids were four and five, and I remarried a couple of years later, and um, she decided that uh, I wasn't trainable, I guess, 
But, <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, after oh, about seven years of marriage, um, you know, when we were going through this divorce, I, I, I prayed and I thought, Lord, what is it that you want me to take from this? What is it I'm supposed to know? Because I started looking at, at what, what I could change, and that's mm. me. And I don't always think like that because I try to change other people too mm. still. Um, but I realized that that's very ineffective. Um, and nevertheless, I, um, a person that I knew told me about a program at a local church that was, um, that was uh, the focus of it was to, for men to be responsible for what we do. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll take that up. And uh, after I finished that program, I thought, okay, what, what do I do now? And uh, I joined another program at that church, and uh, a, uh, I'll, uh, not to push it, but I think it's a great, great model. It's called Cele- Celebrate Recovery. So mm. I was involved in that for about five years, and my interest started to wane, and I thought, okay, you know, am I supposed to be doing something else now? So I joined the choir at this church and uh, sang with it for about five, six years, and um, then uh, COVID hit, and... Uh, things happened that uh, I became a little dis- disconcerted or questioning about and um, and that that leaves us leads us today but my destination as far as living was not you know point my finger at gig harbor and say that's where I'm gonna live it just happened sure and uh, I think it was supposed to happen because you know here after divorce and and um, and uh, the um, financial and spiritual and just the unsettling amount uh, settling in my soul in my life uh of uh losing a wife of at uh, of uh who was only 37 at the time and being left with these two kids that couldn't pour their cereal without messing up and you know that was a kind of a tough time but I'm thankful that they couldn't pour the cereal because it meant that I had to. Yes. So, um, and I, so all of that in, in, in answer to the, to the question, no, Dig Harbor was, uh, it was more than fate. I was more directed here. And, um, and each time that I thought about, okay, what do I do now? And where that particular event or circumstance or, in, in my life was um, uh, I had worked that through or a, as much as I was going to, I suppose. Sure. Um, yeah, each time there was something there readily available that spoke to my personal growth needs. So you've, faith has been a huge component growing up, a huge component in your life. And it's, I love hearing like the way you talk about listening, listening to you know, God, whether it is a direction or or a, a spurring of your soul, can you describe what that sounds like when you are listening to God? Well, um, first of all, I for me, uh, the method of understanding occurs simply that my best, uh, I understand best. When the when the message is simple, and uh, I don't like to be yelled at, I never have. <laughs> and sometimes I used to, I think that God would yell at me. You know, I'd have to hear his. I'd have to 
so to speak, hear him yell at me in order to pay attention. And I'm at the point now where, um, you know, I've been hit up beside the head enough times, and that's not very comfortable. And so um, as far as my faith is concerned, I, I pray. Um, I, I call it my Hansel and Gretel prayer. And you might hear me say this once in a, once in a while. But uh, Could you just elaborate on that? Oh, uh, absolutely. Well, <laughs> Hansel and Gretel, you know, for, for those of us over 50, we heard the fairy tale, the Grimm's fairy tale about Hansel and Gretel, the German kids that were lost in the forest, and they followed their breadcrumbs. Well, so that's what I pray. Lord, leave me some breadcrumbs mm. so I can find my destination. And I find that sometimes by looking backwards and seeing where was I successful, where did I have the most impact, where was I happiest, you know, what did I do that I, in, in the working world, that I might have gotten promoted or passed this, this certification test or just got through this difficulty with my kids. You know, just in life, life in general, I, I pray, Lord, keep it super simple and I try to stay close to where as a in in a um, manner of speaking where I can hear his whisper and so I try to stay close enough to my faith and the words of God to where I can hear him whisper because I don't like being yelled at and it hurts too to be hit up beside the head that number of times when one makes a mistake you know I'm or when you have these big events like and I've mentioned the, uh, oh, some of the things that that this includes having a car repossessed, being out of work, you know, having no money, mm. having a wife die, you know, being, you know, going through a divorce, uh, et cetera. So um, the, it isn't over yet as far as uh, my life is concerned. But um, where I am right now, one of the affirmations that I got was, um, uh, I had a young man helping me in, in my yard, and I, we got to talking. I knew him through the Tacoma Refugee Choir, who I sing with, and I'm on the board of the Tacoma Refugee Choir. And anyway, he, um, but never, nevertheless, uh, he was helping me in the yard, and he said uh, that, uh, and we were small talking, and he said that he was finishing his AA degree at uh, Tacoma Community College. Uh, and uh, in accounting, and that he now needed to find a mentor. And so we talked a little bit more, and I said, well, I used to work, you know, I'm, I think I was still working at the time. And I told him, um, well, uh, that's where my training is, and I'm serving as the CFO of this fairly large uh, nonprofit, and uh, uh, that I'd be, I would be honored to serve as, as his mentor. So that was an affirmation that helped me to know that you know, this is another phase of my life. Um, I'm 69 years old, and I'm starting to try and embrace the um, embrace that uh, longevity. But even more so, what that requires of me, what what that you know, I'm I'm supposed to pass on, not you know, tell other people what to do, but uh, to help them. I, I call it help pull them up the ladder, or push them up the ladder, or offer some you know, some advice or have you thought about this? Um, and so uh, that, that's, that's the whisper or, or another element of the whisper that I heard uh, about where I am and what I do next. So this young man who you, you 
you're getting to know. He actually said, hey, I'm looking for a mentor. He actually said, yeah. oh, wow. He said that to me, not knowing that I was a professional finance accounting auditor, sure. CPA kind of thing. I think what is for young people, I think finding someone to be a mentor is very important. Yeah. And uh, as a young leader, I remember having mentors who were not my bosses, but they were people who I would reach out to because I wanted to become the best leader I can be. In order mm-hmm. for me to do that, I had to reach out. And and I think what's cool is hearing a young person, because typically you, that's not your first pursuit. So it's fascinating that he would say that out loud to you, which I think is cool because so many people don't have that kind of conversation, mm-hmm. especially when, when we're younger. Yes. What, what are the keys of, of being a person with the amount of life experience, a lot, also the amount of professional experience, what are the keys when it comes to being that mentor? And I'm sure you've mentored people as a professional for years, and not knowing that you were mentoring them, you were just um, kind of leading, using your leadership to help grow that individual. What does that look like? Well, uh I think uh, some of the elements, you know, I don't want to pass myself as being a know-it-all because um, this is the first person that I've, I've mentored other than my two kids. I've got a, a son, 31, and a daughter, 32. But um, um, he openly asked me, and I was looking for, you know, praying, talking to God, looking for guidance as to what I do next because I'd become kind of disconsolate and, um, you know, tired um, of uh, uh, in what I was doing. But in more direct answer to your question, some of the things that I think are are valuable, first of all, the uh, it's critical that the uh, the elder listen and watch and observe uh not only the tendencies, but the directions and uh, to, to ferret out what is, to understand what that uh, individual needs that the uh, mentor can provide. And I think for me as a mentor, I think the first thing that I need to do is to remain um, convinced that I don't know everything and I don't have the answers that, uh, but help the other person to, the, the mentee to um, formulate their own direction, to have confidence in their own skills, uh, the skills that they've developed because of their talents, because of their experiences. And I think those, the impact that that individual has had will give them a clue as to the next direction um, or the direction they should, they would best benefit by and can benefit you know, their mission, the accomplishing of their sure. mission. So, um, but I think a, a, a good mentor is a great listener, and I'm, I'm trying to work on those myself. Yeah. I think a good mentor asks questions rather than provides answers. Did you think about this? Or what do you think will happen? What impact do you want to have? Um, do you know why you're doing this? 
So, and, and just, I, I think a mentor is a person that's placed in that person's life. So to help them achieve um, their direction, their influence, their impact, to make, to be, to help them develop. I love the way you talked about that. The idea of asking questions versus telling people. The power of helping someone self-reflect is huge. Because then, all of a sudden, instead of being told what to do, I'm now thinking and reflecting and then making, you know, kind of a decision about what's next for me and what I'm doing. We need more people asking questions. And I love how you also said it's important for you to listen and for you to track what's needed versus make a judgment and then make a make a pontification. Mm-hmm. As a those that's a powerful way of thinking in terms of of helping a person to grow. Because when you're told what to do and you are compliant in doing that, that's great but it doesn't help that person reach another level in their development. Well, it develops a dependency. They're yeah. dependent upon you and your pontification in, in uh, determining their own destiny. And I think we all want to be, I think a person knows more about them, or the whole idea of this life is for us to develop and to contribute. Hmm. You know, I think uh, an individual is acting godlike. Or even, or you know, in a worldly sense, as a colonial, or as an imperial, yeah. when they tell another person, "This is what's best for you," and I, I, I'm, uh, you know, I like being, being um, imperfect, and having the ability to make mistakes. Yeah, you know, I'm, you know, as <laughs> soon as I accepted being imperfect, it's amazing. The more and more I accept it. It, it, it's 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 inspiring because it it's an element of of freedom that I am I'm, I'm growing into. So I think I think about two things. One is being prideful. Mm-hmm. Is you stop you, you you stop thinking about your own needs to grow and being humbled, accepting the fact that I'm not a perfect person. I'm making mistakes. And I'm okay with that because now I can actually grow versus hide. In Gay Harbor, I see a lot of people who are hiding. And like in, like most communities I've lived in, people are hiding because they don't want people to see their flaws. Mm-hmm. And, and it's amazing to see that like uh, as a you know, former you know, admin at Gay Harbor High School, I saw what was far more economic diversity within Gig Harbor than people who don't know Gig Harbor. You know, they come in and they make the assumption that there's a lot of wealth. Mm-hmm. And, and there is. And there is. But there's also a lot of people who are hiding the idea of, I want to fit in. I want to look like I belong. And therefore, what happens is, is they wear familiar clothing to fit in mm-hmm. versus the idea of, being who they, who they are. And I'm not sure if you've had that experience in, in Gig Harbor or, or noticed that. Um, yeah, I do. And um, I, think, I think it follows wealth as far as the entitlement is concerned. And this is a wealthy country. 
And this is a wealthy spot in a wealth, a wealthy community in a wealthy country, so to speak. There's, I mean, Frank Russell trust babies and Milgard trust babies and warehouse trust babies. And there's, you know, and, and we haven't even gotten out of Canterwood or the uh, harbor itself where, um, I don't know, I'll, I'll throw out this figure. Half the boats down there cost more than on my house. So, um, you know, and, and that can, and, and that those, those things, those toys uh, that, that can be confused, that can, can allow a person to be confused themselves and think that those are the elements of success. Mm. And I think, unfortunately, that's how we measure success in the Western world and in this country yes. uh, and in this community. So, and, you know, one of the adages I've heard, and I don't particularly like them, but this one's cute and I, I like it, um, was that you do, don't see uh, Brinks trucks following, you know, funeral, uh, in a funeral procession. In other words, you can't take it with you. Yes. So what do you do with it? I think our accumulations are best used in service of our family, our community, our country, and uh, other people who may be struggling. We uh, here in Gig Harbor, most of us are 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 very privileged because, well, we didn't sleep outside last night. Uh, although there are some people behind uh, there are tents behind the library here in Gig Harbor yes. of people that are that are houseless, you know, that sleep outside, and you know those individuals are not. You know, they're not failures. They're not criminals. You know, some of them have fallen on hard times. Some of them have mental health issues. And uh, if we can't take care of of the people that we see that are nearest us, you know, I, I think we're, very frankly, what good are we? It's a good question because there is a lot of need. And I think a lot of people don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And and I and I wish there were good models of responding to the homeless crisis. Well, one of the ones that I try, and I think this is universal, is when you when a person wants to know what another person needs, ask them. Uh, uh, they know better than me. Yeah. <laughs> they they know how cold it got outside more than I do. Nevertheless, uh, I think people who are experiencing we have different experiences and for me to think that I know what you have experienced and what you need that's misguided I think I really think that's that's parental you know on a on a a larger level it's colonial and on an even larger level it's imperial and it's basically saying I know what you need I know better than you what you need and what is going to make your life um, more tolerable, easier, um, um, fulfilling. You've used the word colonial and imperial a couple of times, mm-hmm. and I, I want, I'm gonna, want you to build unpack that a little bit because I think that's a, a, a powerful word, and also is a powerful image about responding to people. And before I ask the question. Um, I was fortunate to be able to live in Bangladesh, mm-hmm. a country that is one of the um, 50 under, most underdeveloped nations when it comes to infrastructure and, and, and how to 
you know, meet the needs of his people. And, and they are uh, a people that has received incredible amount of, of financial uh, giving, donations, and, and they have pursued that to the point where they are dependent on financial giving around the world. And then I spent time, like I said, in Zambia. And they're very intentional. It's like, no, 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 no. We don't want, we don't want money. We want knowledge and empowerment because when we become a country dependent on giving, then we, that is a form of imperialism on them as, as people. And I never quite fully understood until I saw those two examples. Like, wow, the power of giving where you become dependent. And then the power of we want knowledge and we want to become self-sustaining as people, like in Zambia. The two images are, are powerful. Can you describe when you use the word and, and, and maybe take those two examples as well as what that looks like in American, Americana? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, first of all, hey, I am not a sociologist, psychologist, or, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm imparting what I have experienced, yes. my personal experiences, my personal understanding and philosophy. And, you know, in, influenced uh, in a geo-Judeo-Christian uh, manner, a man driven by my faith and, um, and loving my country and uh, wanting to see this great experiment wanting to see success in this great experience. And I think lately the jury's out. I think that uh, there are more elements that breed hate, uh, or they're, they're certainly more prominent than most times in my life. And that's af after having lived in uh, Alabama and traveled uh, to South Carolina. Uh, incidentally, my, my um, um, father's side of the family is from South Carolina, um, and up and down the uh, uh, southern North Carolina through uh, North Georgia is where um, my ancestors, or the enslaved people from which I come, that's where they're concentrated. Uh, my last name is Rhett, and uh, I ran across one day during my idle time um, Searching the net, I ran across a letter from Robert Barnwell Rett to Jeff Davis uh, six months before uh, Fort Sumter in South Carolina, Charleston Harbor, was fired upon uh, starting the Civil War. This letter from Robert Barnwell Rett said uh, basically, and I'm somewhat paraphrasing, but uh, anybody who's listening can do their own Google search, and they will come up with this letter and probably several uh, uh, biographies about Robert Barnwell Rett. Anyway, this letter said, if we start this war, who's coming with us? Robert Barnwell Rett was colloquially known as a fire eater, and these were the 12, 13, 14 landed gentry, wealthy, influential people in Charleston who wanted to see the South secede, mm -hmm. to want it 
this letter said, first of all, said, if we start this war, who's coming with us? Basically, what other states are going to see, secede if, if the war is started and we start it? Robert Barnwell Rett was also uh, the um, senator, the federal, the U.S. senator that replaced, I want to say, John Calhoun, who was a strict uh, segregationist and a states rightist. And what the southern states, any historian may refute this, uh, or refute it if you want, but my understanding was certainly been that uh, the Civil War was started over slavery, that the, the southern states wanted to, ha- which were largely agricultural, needed this cheap labor source. And therefore, regardless of the humanitarian concerns, or ignored the humanitarian concerns of one people owning another people, I, 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 can't, I can't fathom how that could be, how, that, how one would defend that as right. Yes. Uh, but nevertheless, that's what we did in this country. Uh, or that w- w- was what was done in this country, and so my last name comes from one of the strict, uh, the most well-known segregationist in this country at the time. In fact, it was thought that he was that Robert Barnwell Rett was so much of a rabble rouser, and uh, that I believe on the second ballot of the Confederacy to nominate their president, eventually Jeff Davis. He was eliminated for being too radical. So um, in one of the uh, happenstances, we'll call it, of the success of the, um, uh, the agricultural success of South Carolina and Georgia primarily is, well, they were agricultural, but they were wetlands. That's low country. Uh, uh, and... Um, often flooded, kind of swampy, but the slaves, the people that were enslaved from Senegal and Western Africa, Sierra Leone, they grew rice. That was low country. So essentially these slaves, these enslaved people had the technology to make that, to grow rice and to make it successful, uh, to make that area agriculturally successful, but never benefited from their own labors. And you know, on, in, a, in a local sense, most fathers and mothers want to have something to pass down to their kids. And what they have is passed down. For enslaved black Africans, that never happened. Mm, yes. On top of the fact that they never even, my ancestors never even had a responsibility or say so over their own bodies. And I mentioned... Uh, early in the conversation that my um, my uh, grandfather's uh, mother was uh, was uh, part white part Indian and uh, black uh, and African well my father my grandfather was very light-skinned because he was half white a quarter white on um, on each side of his family, and uh, therefore, it, and his slave, his the, his enslaver, his father, 
who apparently, you know, black people couldn't, black women could not, uh, black people, black women were raped. uh, And, but we were, but my ancestors were property, so they didn't have the rights uh, and standing to bring any kind of offense, you know, a violation against their, their owner. And also slavery in this in this country was outlawed right around um, in the 1820s. And so the way that a slave owner could become, could gain more property was being, well, you would create them. You would have the, uh, your slaves, you would breed your slaves or master would go into the hen house uh, or the hen house or the slaves quarters and have his way with, with, a female slave, producing more slaves because the laws at that time read that it was the the offspring of a slave was another slave, and, and that the one received their distinction as a slave based upon their mother's their standing. Mm-hmm. So, if master raped a, a African slave. The offspring was going to be a slave, and incidentally, I know a little bit about my heritage. Only be, uh, black people who that have been in this country, um, whose ancestors were enslaved, we know more about our heritage simply because black people were property. And mm-hmm. so, therefore, when the slave owner died, they passed on their property, and so there's wills, estates, and trusts that name the slaves. And so I never thought of it from that perspective. Yeah, and uh, in fact, wow. uh, uh, there's a new museum that opened in Charleston, and I'm going to go back and see some people that uh, uh, that I may not have met, and some that I've known and been in communication with, and just do some genealogical research and just soak in more of who I am. Yes. So uh, that I get to do now that I'm retired. The the power of of identity and knowing where an individual comes from is, is, very, is very important and empowering. Uh, my father was raised by his aunt and uncle, mm-hmm. and so he did not know his mother. She passed away when he was a, a young guy, an infant. And so by the time he got older, he didn't live with a frost. I think he met his father for the first time when he was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And he asked, <laughs> my grandfather asked my dad for 50 bucks. And my dad was like, I don't have 50 bucks. Like, and I, like, so that was the relationship. And it was amazing to see um, my dad struggle with a little bit of that identity of not really knowing where you come from, mm-hmm. not knowing your family, not knowing. Uh, he found out much later he had a brother who lived mm. in Arizona. And, wow. then, and then they met as um, older older men and for the first time. And, and I can only imagine the idea that, you know, the idea of not knowing your heritage, not knowing your background, but also having a stain of being a slave as part of your background. How does that... How does it impact black men and black women today in society? Well, I think, uh, let's see. 
The uh, first of all, the uh, first people, first black people in this country were not slaves. They were explorers or um, uh, members of a crew of uh, on a boat. But um, um, I I think don't want to speak to to. Um, I can speak about how I feel. Yeah. Uh, I can. Uh, I, I don't want to get out of an. Uh, um, you know, I don't want to talk about things that I don't know or that I don't believe. But as far as uh, people saying that you know that was so long ago, is but the vestiges of remain. Uh, I mean, even let's see. I think it was Wesleyan College just yesterday decided they're no longer going to have the uh, legacy. Uh, kinds of admissions, mm. and that's basically uh, how that worked. Is like it's how legacy admission works in Ivy League schools, prestigious schools, basically any college. Yes. Uh, you can get in, or you get favoritism because your mother, your father, you know, somebody that you're related to went there. Yes. So that's a that is a preference. Uh, well, if black people didn't go to that school, they're not going to have that preference. Um, that, um, you know, as far... So I think for a white person to say that they haven't benefited is really is myopic and maybe defensive. Maybe they don't want to know the truth that, yes, you have benefited and that you still are benefiting. That... You know, I, I mentioned that um, the passing on of wealth. Well, if you don't have any wealth, you can't pass it yeah. on. And if it's been stolen for generations, well, that's many accumulations of generations that don't get to benefit the uh, the uh, present day people or not. Offspring don't benefit from the works, the successes, the accumulations, the sacrifices of their predecessors. So. That's what white people, uh, many white people in this country experience. I mean, you've got, um, when wealthy white people pass on their estates or as they get older, uh, they'll benefit their community. Well, that community is primarily who they know uh, and the organizations that they've been involved in. You know, and I, I don't want to name any names because, these, you know, there, there are some very good um, um, efforts and, uh, um, and legacies that are passed on to needy organizations doing good works. But you benefit who you know and who's part of your community and who you feel safe with. And that's who you hang around with. And I think that, that as far as, you know... Uh, Parents are concerned. I think when your kids are young, you you direct them. You tell them what is wrong and what is right. And as they get older, they achieve that. Uh, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to let them go. Make your own um, successes and mistakes. Well, on a um, and this is just my viewpoint. Sure, but I I think of colonialism as extended parent parental you don't have the ability saying that the other individual does not have the ability to know where they want to go what they want to do what their skills are what they want to learn and 
and, and grow. The, whether consciously or unconsciously, and I think a lot of times this is unconscious, uh, but, but still behaviors that are ingrained, what the colonialists will do is, uh, is, is they're saying that I know what you need better than what you need or better than what your dreams are. Uh, do it this way and prescribes and even limits the, the influence that that and the freedom that that person can have to make their own discussions, to make their own decisions and mistakes uh, and uh, uh, to grow in the direction where they, their ancestors, their families, their community needs. And it keeps us from being one because we, you know, from understanding each other. And I think that's the, the value on a microscopic level. It's what a mentor needs to do mm. is to listen, to know what is it that I have that I can, what door can I kick open so this individual can walk through mm. and uh, achieve the distinctions, the self-sufficiency, the self-determination, the ability to, to grow where their God leads them. So, and, and on a grander scale, yeah. I think applying that to a, a, a grander, um, uh, more, a, a bigger world, that's imperialism that the imperialist is saying that I get to take what I want from you. Mm. Uh, I get to give you what I think you need. And it's, it's just a larger population. That's, that's my thinking. Correct me where you think I'm wrong. No, I'm, no, no. I, I, I think listening to you talk about this generational uh, issue that goes back to um, enslavement and then looking at how can we um, be better within within our communities, within our country, within the world because it's it's fascinating to watch from the outside as well as personal experiences when the, when the topic of racism comes up be with a, a white individual and a black person talking, it gets, for most people, super uncomfortable, and they don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And I think one thing I've always appreciated about you is being able to have a conversation where I feel like I'm able to uh, hear, hear uh, learn, as well as have a, a conversation, whereas in other... Um, other times in my life, I'm not sure if, if I knew what to say, uh, knew what uh, another individual's life experience looked like. And I think we need to spend time, you know, in our daily lives, having conversations with people and, and getting beyond that being uncomfortable. Because kind of like what we talked about earlier, <laughs> you don't grow <laughs> when everything's good. You grow when... There's uncomfort in mm -hmm. your life. Absolutely. And you pursue that. And I know there's been efforts within the workplace trying to have, be more inclusive. But I also found the people who are leading these workshops 
are people who struggle with having a conversation about racism. Yes, I agree. <laughs> and I think let's have those uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. And I don't think a person necessarily needs to have it all figured out in order to lead or facilitate that discussion. And they get to be uncomfortable too because we're all trying to figure this out. Yes. And But the goal is to live harmonious. I'll just boil it down to what I simply understand from my faith and that Christ died telling us uh, after telling his, his um, you know, after telling his boys, his knuckleheads, you know, uh, when one asked, uh, what's the greatest commandment? And he said that you love one another. Love your God as, love your God as, you know, with all your heart and mind and soul and your neighbor as yourself. Well, we're supposed to love ourselves. We're supposed to love our neighbor and we're supposed to love God. And I don't think we can, I personally can't do that. I'm moving away from uh, loving God when I, you know, when I want to get even, when I want to, mm. you know, just, uh, just, um, flip off the person that wouldn't let me in on the freeway or when I, you know, uh, step over a person that's homeless with a sign thinking, well, they're drunk. They're going to go buy alcohol. Well, you know, that's, how's that helping my world or how's that helping our world? Yes. How's that help us to live together? How's that helping me to show love? And, you know, I, I will grant you whenever I, uh, start to try, whenever I remember that, commandment of jesus i'm probably don't want to i'm i'm that tempers my disappointment with uh you know people not being able to get along just the other day um i was taking a walk it was um uh, actually it's about two months ago because it's around uh nine o'clock and it was it was dark and um and in July, it's not dark at nine o'clock. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I decided, okay, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, uh, I wanted to take a walk. Got to keep my blood sugar down because I'm older and I'm fighting some of these older person's ailments. Yeah. The, the uh, impetuosity of my youth where, youth where I went <laughs> eight, eat anything, drink anything, smoke most things, and and stay up late at night. Yeah. Well, uh, the. So I'm walking through my neighborhood, and I had gotten maybe seven houses away. There was a uh, a woman. I, I live in Gig Harbor. Gig Harbor is predominantly white, yeah. and uh, and I live in a uh, little community that's that's predominant that represents Gig Harbor. Sure. I call it Gig Harlem because there's another black person that lives there. So. But um, so because there's another black person who loses, it's Gig Harlem. That's my sense of humor. <laughs> no, I love it. No. But. Uh, so I'm walking seven or eight houses roughly from mine, and this woman drives up she to visit her friend, neighbor I inferred, or, or, or friend I inferred, and the friend answers the door as this woman walks up, and I'm also approaching on the sidewalk, and she says, quick, quick, come in. Get in the house quickly. And I took that to mean that, and I was the only person on the street, only other movement on the street. I took that to mean that there is a black person coming up the street and he is a threat so get in the house quickly and that's not the first time that's happened yeah. i'm 69 years old so you know i've seen some racism drink uh tried to drink out of uh i've seen uh, water fountains that say colored only white mm. white only and 
And when I saw it, and I, you know, I, I wasn't aware of, of what that meant, um, but started to uh, drink out of one in my only to be, um, to be, uh, only to see my father's anger and for him to grab me uh, by the hand and, and, and to come away from that fountain. I'm, I mean, it's not the first time that that's happened. That's, you know, I did not grow up uh, in that kind of uh, um, environment and experience it nearly to the extent of, of people my age that still remain there. But yeah, uh, that's not totally foreign to me. And it's damned dehumanizing. It means yeah. that you just aren't good enough. And it's also an element of control that I will make this decision and keep you in your place. And it's not sharing or moving through the areas and enjoying the benefits that I get to because of my white skin and or privilege. The idea of walking in your own community. In my own neighborhood in Gig, in Gig Harbor two months ago. Wow. That's, how do we fix that? Um, whether, by the, whether intentional or not, I think we're doing it. And I think it takes sitting and listening to the earth, other person. How do you view this? What do you experience? Because, you know, uh, a, a white person may go into the uh, Fred Myers or Macy's and be shopping. Well, without being followed around. But still, very frequently, a black person is going to get followed and be the one that's, that's noticed. Uh, you know, it's still very disconcerting for me to, um, you know, we're... we're um, our local government and local, most local governments in the state of Washington have uh, this bag requirement that uh, you pay eight cents for a bag if you want to carry your purchases to be yes. carried out in a bag. In a black family, a black boy is taught you get a receipt and you carry your stuff out in a bag. And that's so you won't get accosted. Mm. That's so that those people that are looking at you because they or are thinking that you stole in the first place, they're looking for greater evidence to base their assumptions upon. And so I'm, you know, even still, I'm a little unnerved walking out of um, Albertsons with just my receipt because I don't want to pay eight cents for a bag and I may have left my bag in the car or at home. So... um, I, uh, and and let, let me give another example, and this is a true example, uh, and it, it is a little bit old, but um, I mentioned that uh, my first wife, mother of my kids, died uh, when they were four and five. Well, I still had to take them shopping, you know, do all the things that a, a, two parents would do, and I, you know, my uh, I have a daughter and, and a son, and so we would go into the Macy's to. You know, I always dress them freely. I mean, my daughter and son are entitled. They're gig harbor. They're biracial. They, incidentally, I think this is kind of funny, but they've told me to this, uh, this, uh, and I know I'm digressing. They call themselves African Americans. <laughs> so you know, and I, I thought that's funnier. Anyway, uh, I would. I remember one time in particular going into Macy's and being followed around, um, and. When that uh, salesperson uh, uh, being being the one that's followed around because 
I'm the one that may steal or is suspected of, of stealing. So I, you know, I also remember many times, and this was in, I'll state the name, it wasn't this Fred Meyer here in Gig Harbor, but it was here in Pugetopolis, where several times the individual that walks uh, in front of me or that uh, is in back of me in a, in, a, in a line gets asked if they want help to be serviced. And, you know, I don't want to jump to a conclusion that, is this because I'm a black American? Is, is this because I'm black that you're choosing to serve this other person? Or maybe you're choosing to serve this other person because you're scared of having this interaction with a black person so, you, so that person takes the easy way out and chooses the white person. Nevertheless, regardless of the intent or their motivation, I'm the one that's slighted. I yes. have to wait longer uh, or don't get the service I need. Or... In the case of, and this happened in uh, Tacoma too, um, historically, banks redlined. Redline meant that, you know, if you're a black person, you wanted a mortgage for a house. There were only certain houses that would be in a certain area that was clearly demarcated, even with maps uh, in, in mm. that, that have been, um, during the discovery process of these lawsuits, have been entered as evidence. Well, you're not gonna. We're not gonna extend loans to black people on who want mortgages of a house that's across this line. So therefore, black people couldn't develop the wealth uh, to the to the extent that their economic situation would allow, and had to live in inferior um, uh, communities where property values were less. Where property values, well, that's what's used to pay. School to pay the levies on schools is based upon the property value. So schools have less resources, hire less teachers, have greater teacher turnover, and that's another part of what is maybe not understood by white people. Sure. That is, that's referred to as systemic right yeah. racism. That's what the system says is right, and you and allows. Uh, 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 those allows those efforts uh, that that denies the hopes and dreams and aspirations of of black people. Yeah. It's it's just it you know I it, it's amazing how when one says that when a white person a younger white person says well I didn't benefit I didn't see this I never enslaved your ancestors. Let's just get over this and move forward. No, we haven't solved the problem, and mm. we are repeating the problem. I want to go back to the idea of something you said earlier. Listen, mm-hmm. ask questions, get to know your neighbor, and be thoughtful about our initial responses like, oh, hurry. Come in so I can shut the door because there's a person walking on the sidewalk who happens to be a man of color. That's in my own neighborhood. It's like seven houses down the street. Yeah. So it's just, it just, it's this. My hope is that this conversation inspires me to do, to, to be thoughtful about listening, intentionally listening to my, my fellow man, my fellow woman. And, but also asking questions and, and 
figuring out a way of how can I become more compassionate in the world around me and spread love versus holding that compassion in and only sharing it with people who I know personally versus the idea of being compassionate and demonstrating that in public. And, and I think I'm hoping that when people hear this conversation, people say, how, what can I do to, to listen? What can I do to build community? What can I do to build compassion and spread, spread love to mm-hmm. other people? Because if we don't, if we don't do that, then we are going to continue repeating and, and having circular conversations, such as the one I had at work a couple of years ago when we were talking about how can we be more inclusive within our classroom and our schools. And the, and the individual who was, um, I'm not going to say a title, but he was kind of a bigwig, mm-hmm. and his comment was, what do I know? I'm a middle-aged white guy. And I, when, I thought, when I heard him say that, I thought, wait a minute. You are just pulling the responsibility card in saying, what do I know? I'm a middle-aged white guy. And it was, it was frustrating to see that because I realized I think he was well-intended, well-meaning, mm-hmm. but the road to hell is paved with, with good intentions and, mm-hmm. and well-meaning. And it felt also like a get out of jail free card yeah. on the accountability of having this conversation and, and being sincere about the conversation. So I want to thank you for having this conversation with me. Sure. It's, it's, it's definitely something I was thinking about. Like, how do we have this conversation without beating people over the head with it. Sure. But also figuring out a way to say, I know more about you today than I ever have. And I've always enjoyed having conversations with you. But I think what also excites me is I see a pathway of hope. Mm -hmm. And that pathway of hope is what you just said. Listen, have uh, compassion, spread love, but also Ask great questions to understand people around you better. And mm-hmm. I think if parents can do that with their kids, model that, but also call out things that need to be called out. And I'm, as a person leading the podcast, I'm talking longer than I should, but one of the things I loved what you said earlier today was the idea that Jesus who's God in the flesh, demonstrated anger. Mm -hmm. And it was intentional. And I think when we are intentional about demonstrating anger, that doesn't mean violence, but rather, Mm -hmm. I'm mad. Mm -hmm. And this is not okay. Absolutely. And I'm going to call it out. Right. And when we don't do that, we keep it in, we we keep it in the closet. We, We do not shine a light on it we allow it to continue allow it to continue by not learning yes from our mistakes and we can do that for one reason ignorance uh both of them can be uh, i think can be summed up as ignorance but ignorance from pride like i know it all i don't need to listen to Mm. you or ignorance from i'm afraid i don't want to have this hard conversation i don't want to admit that 
I'm culpable in making these mistakes or that I have a part. And therefore, nothing gets corrected, regardless of uh, the um, omission or commission of the act and one's place in it. The phenomena continues, and here we remain. And 400 years later, we still haven't solved the problem. And I don't think we should wait for experts to tell us. No, we because I think one of the things you said was like, "Hey, I'm not an expert here, but you've got life experience, mm-hmm. and your life experience is just as valuable as a person who's got a PhD who claims to be an expert because they studied something." But I believe that life experience of having the, the highs and lows, and we both have had highs and lows in our lives but also becoming better human beings and and building better communities. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't happen because I got a PhD. It happens because I love my neighbor. Yeah, and on top of the fact that we get a better solution, we get one that Mm. we can all, hopefully more of us will be able to buy into, and we both learn something and appreciate, you know, each other. Uh, Thank you for inviting me to your... um, your podcast. Yeah, well, thank and, you. And I, I think, uh, I'm, I'm hoping this inspires better conversations. Okay. And well, I, you know, my thinking on that line is uh, we have to start where we are. Yeah. And it's not going to happen in a day. Nope. So, um, you know, I know that at, at times um, I've gotten very discouraged and, um, you know, think, hey, look, this is somebody else's problem. I put 69 years into this. Yeah. So somebody else take a, take the mm. take the ball and run. I'll cheer you on, and uh, or maybe I'll just sit on the sidelines. But um, I think this has helped me to to see that no, there's uh, there's uh, I'm still in this fight. Absolutely. So hey, uh, was it the the twenties when a person's in their twenties? They're 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 learning, they're growing, they're trying to figure things out. When they're in their 30s, they start to take more responsibilities. When they're in their 40s, is really the prime of them being a leader. And then as they're in their 50s, they start to become that wise individual, passing on knowledge, passing on uh, understanding. And in the 60s and 70s, and I think until the day we die, that is our responsibility, mm-hmm. is to pass on knowledge, not to sit on the sideline. I think the world is better with a victor in it than it <laughs> without. So no, thank you. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, this was, this, was, uh, this was probably the most, I'm not sure what is going to happen in this conversation, but I love it. Thank well, you so much. Thank you very much for, yeah, and you for have a glori- asking me to be here. Yeah, and you have a glorious day. <laughs> thank you. And you too. Alrighty.